ask you to uh, think about something before we look at God's Word together. Um, I, I kind of want to have a tent on Easter Sunday. Uh, we're thinking about doing a big tent out front that could maybe hold 350 to 400 people. Last Easter, we were about 650 people in four services. So we were thinking about doing a tent. It co- it'll cost us a little bit of money. Um, Gabe's looking into how we would rent sound equipment and do the different things to do it in a tent. Um, some of you would have to be praying that no snow comes anywhere near or you know, or rain or any of those kind of things, that we'd actually have a spring day or something like that. Uh, but our thought is to do that because we'd like to accommodate as many people as possible. Um, one of the things that people say to me all the time, they say, I've lived in New City for 20 years and never saw the church. Or never saw the sign, or never saw this, and uh, I think a tent would be hard to miss. <laughs> so uh, think about that, pray about with us. We're thinking, you know, uh, raising some donations, see if we can cover this, and uh, you know, maybe we could accommodate three, three fifty to four hundred people in one service, which would be more than we usually can. So uh, between now and Easter, we're we're doing a series, a Lent series, where we're we're taking a journey through some of Jesus' strategic moments and some of his strategic teachings and preparing our hearts. We believe if we get on page together as we go to Easter that God brings breakthroughs during Holy Week. Um, We've often seen physical healings during Holy Week. We've seen spiritual and emotional breakthroughs. Uh, We believe that the Lord wants something for you, for your family. Uh, and we believe when we get on page together, some great things can take place. So we're going we're gonna to look today at one of Jesus' key teachings and one of his, his key encounters with a religious leader in, in John chapter 3. And I'm going to ask you to, to really put aside in some ways uh, the way you've thought about the phrase born again. Uh, being born again is neither a political phrase nor is it a subset of Christianity, and it cannot be simply defined by the media or defined by people that are in this day and time. Being born again has to be defined by Jesus, and so I'm going to ask that you sort of put aside what you've thought and let us look at what Jesus has to say about being born again today and use the words and use the context that he uses it in And then I think what you'll see, if you'll work with me on it, you'll see something that takes you to a great intimacy with the Lord. Let's read God's Word together. I like it when you read out loud with me. So we're going to read God's Word together out loud. This is John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And be born. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be true? answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, Jesus makes it clear that there is this qualification for entrance into his kingdom, which is to be born again or to be born of the Spirit. Now, who is he saying has to be born again? So let's dig into this a little bit in order to understand this phrase, born again. Um, first, let's talk about who he's talking to. He's talking to Nicodemus. Now, what we get from the text here is Nicodemus was an older man. Nicodemus was a man at the height of his social status. He was the, of the ruling high class of Israel. He was a, a moral man. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he was scrupulous and meticulous in regards to his righteousness, his obedience to the law. He was in every way a, a religious man, a socially high uh, achiever. He was a successful man. And even though oftentimes when we see Pharisees, they are ridiculing Jesus or they are mocking Jesus or they're trying to trap Jesus, he comes in humility. Now, he comes at night because he's not ready to throw his life in with Jesus yet. But he comes in humility because everything that Nicodemus has, he has because he's achieved it. He's gone through the hoops of becoming a religious leader. He's gone through the hoops of becoming a social status person in the land. He's gone through all of the prescribed forms to become what he is. Jesus has gone through none of those things. So here's a man who's achieved everything that you would ever want in terms of politics, religion, and social status. And yet, when he speaks to Jesus, he calls him rabbi. So you don't really get to be rabbi unless you've gone through hoops. You don't really get to be a rabbi unless you've, you've, you've got the, the consecration and the, the affirmation of all the other people. But Nicodemus sees something in Jesus that's missing. And he does come and he does say, rabbi. That's a very humble statement. Now, why is this important? Well, because generally when people start talking about this person is born again, they're usually talking about two classes of people. One is that this is a down-and-out person. This is a person who's destruct, who's, whose life is destructive or their life is not working for them. They're emotionally not fit, something like that. And they go, this person seems like now they are born again because they're different than they were before. But it's almost as if the born-again experience is only for the loser. Or you hear sometimes, because someone went from kind of, a, what do you would call an immoral status or a, an irreligious status, and suddenly they get religion, and they start becoming very moral, and they become very structured and disciplined in their life. And you'll hear people say, 
They must have gotten religion. They must be born again. So you have usually when people are talking about born again, they're usually talking either that someone has become religious or that someone was down and out and suddenly they found something that has lifted them out of the gutter. But that's not the case here. Jesus is saying you must be born again to someone who's really religious already. Very structured in their religion, their morality, their obedience, everything. He's not talking to a down and outer. He's talking to someone who's at the pinnacle of the society. He has power. He has status. He has wealth. He has success. This is what's so amazing about this passage is Jesus is looking at someone who should be praised, impressed. But instead, he looks at him and says, you have to start all over again. Because that's what it means to be born again. To be born again means you have to have a a do-over. You have to have a a fresh start. And Jesus says uh, this to him. And and John himself has said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, as many as receive Jesus, he gives them the right to become children of God. You're, You're not by right children of God until you've received Jesus. You are creations of God. You are, you are, you know, products of the great artist. You're his design. But you are not by right his children until you have received his son. And this is, this is what he's getting at with Nicodemus. Now, let me tell you two things that being born again means from Jesus' talk. First is that Jesus really clearly defines that there's a foundational change. There's a root, a what, what we call it. When you say something is radical, you're talking about getting at the root. Uh, I don't really like gardening, but my wife likes flowers. And so I sometimes, in order to get points, will pull weeds. <laughs> but in my laziness, I sometimes want like a hedge clipper or something that's easy, and I just chop off the head of the weed. But if I have not gotten to the root, then that weed just comes right back. So the idea here is that there are some root issues that have to change in order for you to be a part of the kingdom of God. There are some root foundational issues that radically have to change. And one of them is this. When it comes to status with God, status is another way of saying Standing, right standing with God. All of us are equals. That we start at zero. That we don't start. If, if you're the most religious person in this room, or you are the most sinful person in this room, the only way to come into a right standing with God is to recognize your religion And to recognize your disobedience is all places you at equal footing at the cross. There are no steps at the cross. The cross is level ground. Everyone starts at zero. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, who is one of the most accomplished, moral, religious, political, uh, social status persons that has ever lived, he said, everything you have done does not count. And Nicodemus knows this. 
he gets it right off. He says, how can this be? Can I go back in my mother's womb? Can I do this whole thing over again? Jesus is coming at every performance, every work, every obedient thing, everything that Nicodemus has ever done. And he said, the only way into my kingdom is that you start at zero again. Can you imagine hearing this as someone who has done everything right? This isn't someone who's done everything wrong. This is someone who's done everything right. And Jesus looks at him and without even blinking says, you, Nicodemus, have to be born again. Well, you have to go back and look. What, what is the biblical definition of sin? Because if you don't understand what causes separation from God or what causes you to need to be born again, then none of this will make sense. And what the Bible says is, is sin isn't the symptom. Symptom is your behavior. Symptom uh, are the different ways that you rebel against God or you are apathetic towards God. Sin isn't, isn't just the symptom. Sin has a root. It has a power source in you. And the power source is that every one of us is born self-centered and self-absorbed. Uh, many of us, we're very sophisticated. We know how to make it look like we're about other people. We know how to make it look like we're about other things. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that most of us have heard this saying since we were kids, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. But you're still about catching flies for you. And so whether it's out of your sweetness and niceness that you're catching flies or out of your meanness and rebellion that you're catching flies, either way, it's all about you. I've come up with a new, a new wedding vow. I am committed to you as long as you are what I want you to be. Because when you stop being what I want you to be, my commitment to you will end. Because I only married you as a commodity. I only married you as someone who fulfills me. Someone who understands how absorbed I am with myself. And who doesn't get in the way of my pain relief. And doesn't get in the way of my pleasure. And who doesn't get in the way of my passions. So as long as you are that, I'll continue to be married to you. Because that's the realistic thing that's going on. You know, when we, come on, you got to track with me on this. Nobody likes to hear this, but it's the truth. We basically treat each other like we do grocery stores. You know, there are grocery stores here in town. I'm not loyal to any of them. It's whichever one has the best price or sometimes the most convenient or the parking or I don't have to walk so far or whatever perhaps is the reason that day. That's okay with grocery stores. It's not so great with people. And so what, the reason I'm saying this is because many of us have not realized that the sin is not manifesting only in our behavior. It's the interior life. It's the reason we do things. And what, what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus and he's talking to us today is that all of us have self-salvation strategies. Now, some people's self-salvation strategy is, I'm going to do what I want to do. You just get out of my way or you help me. That's a self-salvation strategy. 
I'm going to have the pleasure I want. I'm going to have the things that I want. And your job is either to assist me or to get out of my way. That's kind of the extreme of self-centeredness. And, and it can result in all kinds of activities, whether they be criminal or otherwise. Because in a way, the world exists for me to be realized. But equally, what Jesus is saying, that it's a self-serving strategy to try to be good, to give. It's so funny because many of us in this room, we're not takers. We're not people who try to, you know, just always be those who are, who are, are, are not, you know, givers and merciful and gracious. But why are we giving? Have you ever noticed that when you give, you're in control? There's a lot of us that we're so wounded, we don't want to receive because it hurts to receive because they may not give us what we want. But we give because we're in control. And when we give, in some ways, we're protecting ourselves and keeping ourselves. Religion is a self-protection, self-salvation strategy. It's a technique of power. And so it is an attempt to make it to where you have either leverage with God or you have leverage with people, but in every way it is an attempt to have power over a world that feels chaotic and insecure. It's a way to get certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And so Jesus looks at this man who has mastered religion. Not me, I didn't say this. Jesus looks at this man who has mastered religion, and he says to him, you got to start over from scratch. Well, if he could say that to him, he says it to all of us. See, something has to happen. Something has to happen to where it is no longer the most important thing in the world to you that people honor you or that people bless you or that people answer to you. Because that's just self-righteousness. It has to come to a place where something from the outside dethrones you. And it's okay with you. Now, I mean, if tragedy comes, it can dethrone you, but it's not going to be okay. If loss comes, it'll dethrone you, but it's not going to be okay. What Jesus is saying is he wants to do something so powerful and wonderful that you are dethroned and you want it. Because if you are just, if it's just a coup, you will mount an, an offensive to get the throne back. Come on, that was, at least Alan understood that was a good one. I'm hoping the rest of you are thinking about this. Or, or maybe you thought you came to the 8.30 service and it's really, you know, 10.30 now or whatever. And you're a little confused with daylight savings time because I'm like firing really fireballs right now. <laughs> Every now and then I got to shake you up just a little bit, all right? All right, so on the one hand, when it comes to status, we are all equals. We all start from zero. The other thing is this, we're all equals for this reason. What's on your account is not your righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. So I don't have a better account than you have. I have all the finished work of Jesus on my account. You have all the finished work of Jesus on your account, okay? 
But here's what makes the difference is first you've got to understand the status question, the standing question. But the second thing you have to understand is you can't be born again unless you die. So if you don't die to the self-centeredness, if you don't die to the self-absorption, then what will happen is you'll just kind of conform to a new religious paradigm and then you'll start saying, I'm more born again than he is. <laughs> or I'm a little more righteous than he is or she is. Or I'm a little more spiritual or I'm a little more devoted. Because it's still all about self. How do I measure up? How do I stand? Instead of recognizing, I have to die to this thing that I call my ego. Because what ego does, friends, ego traps you into believing that your mask has value. Believing that it will protect you. Now, dying to self is not a modern, happy kind of statement. But it is the only way to be born again. I'm going to give you two examples that were meaningful to me. One comes from a study on Alcoholics Anonymous. And then one comes from, from the revival that Martin Luther began. It, there's a sociology professor that I'm starting to read a good bit from Columbia. His name is Del Banco. He did an essay on AA in Manhattan. And he, he, he's a very astute sociologist. He says, something is happening in the, the meetings in AA in Manhattan that instead of it being sort of times of confession and times of repentance, instead of it being a statement of brokenness and of desperation for, uh, for something greater than myself to intervene, and, and to help me with this problem that I can't help myself with, he says what's happening is all these people are showing up and they're, they're getting up and instead of saying, the, you know, I take responsibility, they're saying things like, I'm not going to let people push me around anymore. And they're making statements like, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up for myself. I'm going to stand up for my self-esteem. I, I'm not who they say I am. And, and there's these these kind of power mantras that are going on forth. And he said there was a, a young woman at one of the meetings, and he, he called it, she spoke in a private schoolish kind of whine. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> I went to public school, so maybe some of you know. But it's a, he called it a private schoolish whine that she, as a recovering alcoholic, deserved more space than she was getting from her non-drinking friends. And... Uh, other, she spoke other power kind of statements and stuff. And this young man in dreadlocks looked at her with a mischievous grin and said to her, when I was drinking, I had the same problem you have now. I had not yet achieved low self-esteem. See, do you understand what he's saying? This is so brilliant. Is he saying, you're believing that you can save yourself by the delusion of high self-esteem. By believing that you're great and saying that you're great and saying it's everybody else's fault. Blaming others for your problems. They don't give me enough space. They don't give me enough encouragement. They don't say the right things to me. As long, he's saying, as you keep 
embracing a false high self-esteem, you will not be saved. What is he saying? He's saying in a, in a modern term, he's saying you've not embraced your brokenness. You have not realized you have to go to zero to get started again. See, the rebuke, this is the sociologist, he says the rebuke was a pure expression of the real thing, of the big book, that's A's principal book, that self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity are the root of our troubles. Notice what modifies every word here? Self. Self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. And unless you think, well, this isn't for me, I don't have an alcohol problem. You have a self-problem. We all have a self-problem. And whether we're being saved from a substance or we're being saved from ourselves, we need to be saved. He says this is the root of our troubles, that we must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. Pride is the enemy of hope. See, most of us, the problem is our self-esteem comes from our pride. Our confidence comes from our pride. Instead of it coming from a grounding that actually is sustainable. So, he says, no one can save himself by his own efforts. Trying to save herself, this woman who was speaking, she was lost. Now that's recovery kind of vocabulary. Let me give you reformation or revival vocabulary. There has to be a death to self. There has to be a death to, death to self-delusion, self-centeredness, self-absorption. All the, it, what happens is I begin to realize that all the ways I've been trying to achieve self-esteem, which is just another word for realizing, trying to realize significance, trying to have worth. All the ways I've been trying to do that have been a trap. So Martin Luther was this Augustinian monk. He spent so much of his time and energy in religious activity to purge himself of his appetites, his desires, his unworthiness. He, he literally would take a whip, a horrible, awful whip, and beat himself in order just to make it to where his body would quit betraying him. He slept on cold floors. He ate horrible food. And what he found is no matter how hard he tried, the appetites, the drives only increased. They didn't get less. And so he felt very far from God, though he was trying in every way to save himself. Here's what happened. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us. That word means that he gives us status. He gives us a right standing with him. That God places us in right standing with him through faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. You understand, faith isn't the cause of the righteousness Faith is the means by which you receive his righteousness. Any of you can do this. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. 
and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul's became to me a gate to heaven. Let me, let me break this down in a way one more time. I, I want to pound this a little bit on you, okay? The experience that he had, the, the, the spiritual experience, the, the, the physical experience of being born anew or being born again was really, the experience was affirmation. It was a confirmation because he had to take that first step himself. He had to make the same choice that Nicodemus had to make for himself. He had to start at zero. He had to look and say, all those beatings, they did nothing. All that sleeping on the floor, it did nothing. All that denying myself, it did nothing because it couldn't save me. And he had to renounce those things. He had to die to those things. He even had to die to his own selfish desire to save himself and to continue to keep control when he was saving himself. And he had to yield his control. He had to surrender his will to another. That's what faith is. And by faith, he began to say, it's not on my account. It's Jesus' righteousness given to me. And he believed. And once he believed, And once he got it, he stopped being religious and he stopped trying to save himself and he stopped being so conscious even of how horrible and awful a person he was. And when he stopped that, then the love of God could flood him. And then the the cleansing power of God could flood him. Let, Let me explain why I say this to you. See, Everyone can experience what, what Luther experienced. It's not, it's not rare. It's, it's the heritage of the child of God. But it's, you have to understand how it happens. <laughs> I, I'm really privileged today. My, my youngest is here with us. I love my daughter, Anna, and her husband, Brian, and they're, they're here with us today. And she was the second of two children that I have watched be, be born. And uh, my wife still holds a grudge uh, because I didn't notice that in the first, when Joseph was born, the uh, anesthetic took and she was pain-free. In the second, the anesthetic was administered too late, so she had basically natural childbirth with all the pain accompanying it, and I didn't notice the difference. I always say it's her fault because she didn't scream, yell, or do any of the things that I, I never suffer silently. So, <laughs> so I, I missed it completely. completely. Back I'm back to zero. <laughs> Maybe even less than zero. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Every one of you in this room, you were not brought into existence by your pain. You were not brought into existence by your labor. You were not brought into existence by your blood. Every one of us is here because of our our mother's labor, our mother's pain, 
and our mother's blood. And when Jesus spoke about being born again, it was in a time where almost every mother faced the possibility that they would die giving birth to their child. It was very common to lose the mother in childbirth so that the child could live because there was, there, you know, the health and medical issues of the day. And, and yet, what Jesus is saying is no one can be born spiritually of their own labor, of their own pain, of their own blood, that Jesus himself has to be the spiritual mother. That his pain, his labor, his blood. Now, my mother and your mother, some of might have lost their lives or risked their lives to birth us, but Jesus, it cost him his life to birth us spiritually. I mean, it's such a powerful thing when you realize, yes, he's asking you to die to self, but he's also asking you to be risen to a new life that only his pain could bring for you. See, Jesus was treated as you deserve to be treated so that now you will be treated as Jesus deserves. And though our mothers and you moms in this room, you might have risked your life for your children, it cost him his life for his children. You're not born of your own pain. You're not born of your own labor. You are spiritually born of the labor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his blood. It is his blood and his righteousness that makes you a child of God. And it's, and it's when you get that. See, then religion makes no sense. Because I can't birth myself. I can't have enough pain to give myself life. I can't labor enough to be reborn. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this great religious leader, he's saying, I'm going to do it for you. In chapter 16 of John, Jesus is reflecting on what he's taught to Nicodemus. You can see it if you go back and, and look at it carefully. He says to his disciples, he says, my hour is coming. And anytime he talks about his hour, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his death that's coming. All the time when he uses the word, the, my hour, the hour is coming. And then he immediately goes, he says, when a woman labors for a child, when a woman is travailing for her child and in labor for her child, and then he says, and when the child is born, it's as if the mother forgets all the pain. It's as if the mother forgets all the blood, forgets all the labor, because the joy of holding that child. I remember after Joseph, our firstborn, was born, I said, I'll never do this to you again, dear. And she was more like, when can we have another? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating, those of you who've had children, you know this phenomenon. It's a fascinating phenomenon that for the, the smile of the child, which may just be gas, <laughs> for, that, for that look on that child's face, women forget the pain. You know what Jesus is saying? with a smile on your face. Because when you're born again, it's as if you're laid in his arms as a newborn child. Yeah, you're starting at zero, but you're starting as the child of the Most High God. And he says, 
All the pain was worth it. All the pain was worth it to see that smile on your face. Now, sometimes when we share this, people say, well, this is too easy. You know, all I have to do is believe. All I have to do is, is have faith. All I have to do is just kind of realize that I can't save myself. That I can't stay in this self-deluded, self-absorbed, self-centered state. And I have to begin to focus on Jesus. It is simple. It's not easy. In John, it's the, in John 19, it's the only place we have this recording. It's recorded in all four Gospels that a rich man comes to Pontius Pilate. And he asks for the body of Jesus. But only in the Gospel of John does it say... The two who came, one was Joseph of Arimathea and the other was Nicodemus. Do you realize what that tells you? He was born again. Remember when he came the first time? He came at night. He didn't want people to know. When he came the second time, he went to the Roman governor. Now, the religious leaders killed Jesus for blasphemy. They killed him because... He proclaimed himself God. But the Roman government killed him for insurrection. They killed him for treason. They killed him because he was a threat to the government. So for Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus to actually go and publicly ask Pontius Pilate for the body was to say, we are disciples of him. We're followers of him. He is our focus. Because the government could have thrown them in prison, could have, could have said, you're associated with him, then you're a threat to us. The religious leaders of whom they had been a part and had worked so hard to be a part of that status could have said, you need to die just like he died. So what happened to Nicodemus when he got born again is a boldness and a confidence that had not been there before now arises in him because his self-worth his self, everything, is now centered in Jesus is my Savior. What can Rome do to me? What can the religious leaders do to me? For I've already died and been born again. See, a lot of us in this room have experienced the new birth, but we live as if we haven't. We live still self-centered lives. We still think if it's to be, it's up to me. That wasn't all that happened. There's this amazing passage where it says Nicodemus went and bought all the spices. He bought all the, the ointments and everything for the preparation of Jesus' body. If you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, and you see the bloodiness of Jesus' body. If you see the sweat, the grossness, the messiness, the ugliness of what they did to Jesus. This is a rich man. He's probably never had to do anything like this in his whole life. He's always had servants. The other thing is this. Men never prepared the bodies because they were too high and mighty to do such menial work. Women were often treated in that society as if they were just above property. 
And so the only ones who could touch the dead body, the only ones who could care for the dead body, were women. This is such an astounding passage where this religious leader, this political leader, this wealthy, successful man does what no other man would do. He cares for Jesus with tenderness. He cares not for his status or his rank. All he cares is that Jesus be properly taken care of. Can you track with me on that? Can I, can I just hit you with a principle real quick? Okay, it's a, it's a powerful principle. This was the beginning of Jesus' exaltation. Because he was anointed and prepared by rich men, by the wealthy. He was placed into a wealthy man's tomb. Here's the principle. God never allows his servant to suffer even a moment's more humiliation than necessary. Come on, you got to hear me on this. Some of you think, this is going to go on forever. I'm going to be humiliated forever. I'm going to be down forever. I'm going to be cursed forever. You're hearing a lie that comes straight from hell. The principle, the pattern is that God, even in Christ, who died for our sins and suffered in a powerful way, did not allow him to suffer one minute more than necessary. You can trust him. You can start at zero with him. There's no one else you can start at zero with. But you can trust him that even as you humble yourself, as you begin to lay down your phony self-esteem, and you begin to take up his righteousness, and you take up his love for you, and you begin to realize that you're the smile he's looking for. You're the joy that's set before him. And you begin to live out of that place, then everything changes. Will you stand with me? Would you close your eyes with me? Would you try out these words? You may have already done this. You may have already done this, and so this will just be a reminder. Because in some ways your status for right standing with God, it really never changes. Will you try this out? Father, I stand before you at zero. Now, what you might want to do is just open your hands. Friends of mine that I respect, they say, I got nothing. See, in some ways, you can't even start praying until you realize you got nothing. So let's try that one more time. Will you try it out with me? Father, Father I, stand I stand before you at zero. At zero. Now, what I'm hoping is that you're okay with that right now. That you'll let that be okay. Now, if you've never done this before, then it's time to say, Lord, I receive. Say it with me. Lord, I receive, Lord, I receive the finished work of Jesus. His righteousness, his, righteousness, his, pain, his pain, his sacrifice, his, sacrifice, his, blood. his blood. I'm at zero. I'm at zero. I, stand 
but my account is full. Come on, hit that one again, okay? I'm at zero, but my account is full. See, that's what faith realizes. I'm at zero, but my account is full. See, and if you can die to your, your old works, your old self, and you believe your account is full, then boldness will come forth. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light. And the Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If my account is full where it matters, who cares otherwise? If, if you're getting this, your, your back probably will straighten just a little bit. And your head will raise up. Because if he said it to Nicodemus, he says it to you. We all start at zero, and he fills our account. Would you say this out loud with me, though? I choose choose to die to to self. self. Now, it's very special what the Bible means by that. See, there's a true self, and there's a false self. There's a true self that God is trying to whittle away to get to. And there's a false self that we present as a mask. What you die to is the mask. What you live to is something really true. It's a choice. I can't can't even say the words for you. You have to decide, am I going to keep being an imposter or am I going to go to my true self? Am I going to protect myself or am I protected? Lord, will you seal what you're doing in our midst today? In Jesus' name, amen. We have, uh, amen. We have people who love praying with you up here, so if you'd like to come and just, particularly if you prayed something today for the first time, please come and and just pray with one of our, our prayer ministers up here. They love praying with you. God bless you. We'll see you next week.